Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Today, Bridget Griffin shared a video of her daily yoga routine, two self-help articles, and her new blog called Build Your Inner Bridge with Bridge. Girl, your sharing has turned into oversharing. No worries, Bridge. Geico has some info worth sharing with your seven blog followers, like how you could save money on your car insurance, update your policy, and report a claim just by visiting geico.com. How's that for building your inner bridge? Bridge, Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Blog Talk Radio. for me because I get to interview again one of my favorite people, Dr. Lynn Katai. Uh, She wrote a book in 2004 called The Phoenix Lights, and I had the honor of reading it and interviewing her a number of years ago on my husband Patrick's radio show, Matrix Radio. And I have shamelessly gone through this book probably four or five times since that show, I have shamelessly underlined and, and highlighted and, and, you know, folded down pages, stuck little pieces of paper into sections that, that resonated to me. Most of you know that I, I saw a UFO when I was in college in the 60s, so this story, this book, has fascinated me ever since I was 
turned on to it. Um, I have recommended it to just about everybody I know. And she has recently revised it and reissued it with tons of more information in it. It, it, it really, I'm going to have to buy another book and, and, you know, shamelessly go through it and highlight the sections that are important to me. Um, she was a skeptic about UFOs before this whole book came out. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Phoenix Lights, um, and, and I, I, you don't have to be a, a UFO fanatic to be, to be um, in, interested in it or even know about it because it was one of the largest sightings that have taken place in the United States in, in the recent decades. Um, but I want to read a little bit about, about the book that, that is um, sort of uh, to give you an idea as to what, what it's about before I bring Lynn on to really blow your socks off. On March 13, 1997, something extraordinary happened in the skies over Phoenix and across Arizona. On that clear evening, a parade of low-flying, mile-wide, V-shaped formations of orbs and craft glided silently overhead, attracting the attention of at least 10,000 people. And this book is a detailed account of that evening and the ensuing cover-up of what is now being hailed as the largest mass sighting of UFOs in modern times. But there is much, much more to the story. By following the journey of a respected medical professional who moved from skepticism to belief while meticulously investigating the topic for 19 years since the event, the reader takes a wide-ranging tour of UFO history from primitive cave paintings to the 21st century reports. Extensive image analysis combined with the testimony of a variety of well-known figures, including past presidents and astronauts such as Dr. Edgar Mitchell, make a compelling case that these anomalous phenomena have been visiting us for, for a millennia. The revised and expanded version of the best-selling 2004 edition shares the latest UFO developments and sightings, in addition to a convincing connection between all unexplained phenomena, what the author calls UPs. There is also recent testimony from eyewitnesses, a 911 Phoenix police operator, as well as commercial and military pilots. Dr. Lynn Katai is an internationally acclaimed physician and health educator who pushed aside, who put aside her successful medical career to pursue the Phoenix Light Books, an internationally award-winning documentary project. The website for this amazing material is www.thephoenixlights.net. I highly encourage all of you to check that one out. And now, without further ado, I am going to say welcome to the show, Dr. Lynn. I'm so glad you're here tonight. Uh, it is such a pleasure to be with you, Barbara, and we have a long history together as well. And as you uh, mentioned, the, the book actually is now in its third print. Uh, I do reveal um, a chapter, uh, actually dat new data in a chapter that I never thought I'd ever share 
Um, but I no longer believe in coincidence, and we can get into that. So I feel at this point that it's really important to get all the data out there and let people decide for themselves because, I, as you also mentioned, I'm a healthy skeptic. Um, I'm still open uh, to any logical explanation, which I have yet to find after 19 years of intense research, uh, after thousands of people saw what I had been documenting, seeing and documenting on film, uh, for two years prior, with no interest or knowledge in the topic at all, two years before the uh, March 13th, 1997, and we're, we're quickly approaching that, um, uh, happened. Uh, actually, my husband, who's also a physician, and I had a very close sighting to our home, uh, just yards from our, not even 100 yards from our home, uh, three orbs in a pyramid formation. I mean, it was just unbelievable. We we live high uh, on a mountain that surrounds Paradise Valley. It's called Paradise Valley, but it surrounds the valley uh, of the sun, uh, Phoenix. And uh, we have a panoramic view of the city skyline. If people are near their computer and they want to get on uh, the website, thephoenixlights.net, and go to the photo page, there's a picture there that, that shows the view from our mountainside home which is, is really larger than that. Uh, it's a, an expansive view of the city skyline. So we know what planes and helicopters and streetlights and car lights and so forth look like because we're, we're looking right towards uh, the airport. And also there's two mountain ranges there, which we'll get into, but um, which are very significant. But at any rate, this uh, uh, close sighting was unbelievable. I mean, we were uh, in our bedroom. One wall of our bedroom is a window. So whatever pops up out there that's unusual, we get to see, and uh, and also the beautiful sunsets here. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, uh, my uh, it was the night before my birthday, which is coming up. Um, my birthday is February seventh. It was the eve, the night before, and my husband actually was at the window talking to my mother-in-law, who had called from Philadelphia to wish me a happy birthday, and I was in the bath in the other room. And he says, get over here quick, what the hell is that? And he is not one to be alarmed. He was on several medical and state uh, hospital boards. And uh, when he said that, I I grabbed my towel and ran to the window. And a little below us, and it's a private gated area, and we're we're surrounded by mountains on, on one side. We're kind of nestled in the mountains, so there is no way, and I underlined that, underlined it, underlined it, that it could have been military. It's a no-fly zone, and it's a, a very private area. Uh, there were three amber orbs about 50, 75 feet off a very treacherous uh, incline uh, of, of desert landscape. And, uh, I, you know, you have that mental moment, because I didn't want to move, and you'll hear that from many, many um, people that experience an anomalous phenomena. They're just awestruck, and as we were. And I wanted to grab my camera, but you don't know how long it's going to last. And I try to take everything in mentally, the size, the shape, the color. They were about three to six feet each. They were actually oval-shaped, like an egg on its side. And there were three distinct objects, one on top and two closely aligned underneath. And and I urge people to take that mental moment <laughs> once in a while because it is so ingrained in my my mind. And it's it, it's amazing if you if you really take the time to be mindful of what's in front of you. Um, it, it's very valuable because I, I can see it in my mind's eye. And uh, each one was um, uh, you know, it was very closely aligned. And 
the light within each orb, and I called them an orb because the light did not extend outside the edge, was a very soothing, mesmerizing, even-colored amber. And you would hear that worldwide when people see these phenomena, similar phenomena. For some reason, the word amber comes up. And anyway, I thought to myself, if I don't get a picture of this, no one's going to believe it. And I go right into the closet to grab my 35-millimeter that I have handy because we do have beautiful sunsets in, in Arizona, and I collect them. And my husband calls me back. He says, get over here quick. One of them is disappearing. And as we both stood there and watched in just sheer wonder, the top orb, without budging, and I and I have to just interject that we had two young boys at the time, and, and you know, other than seeing the movies E.T. and Close Encounters and watching the original Star Trek series because the messages were so wonderful, we had no interest or knowledge in this topic at all. So this was so out of our reality. It was just unbelievable. But I have to tell you, the uh, if you remember the Romulan cloaking device that they yeah. used to do the cloaking, it used to waver. I mean, it would waver in, in Star Trek. Well, I really noted that. That just popped in my head, and it wasn't wavering. It wasn't budging from the other two. It was just imploding, shrinking very, very, very slowly until it was a dot. But once it disappeared, I have to say that it felt like it was still there. Where did it go? Uh-huh. Okay, I jumped out on the balcony, got a quick picture of the two lower orbs. And if you uh, look on the website, on the phoenixlights.net website photo page, you'll see the picture of the two bottom orbs. And I have to say that immediately I noticed an eerie silence as if time had stopped. It was just uh-huh. bizarre. And as I'm intently watching these two lower orbs, it felt like something was watching me. And I didn't share this with the soul until after the mass sighting two years later when I finally met the investigators of the Phoenix Lights. But I have to tell you that going through my mind was, who are you? What are you? Do you know that I'm here? I'd love to meet you. And the next thing I remember, the left bottom orb starts to implode like the top one did. And I quickly shot a picture of that. And that's also on the photo page. And that was the only picture that turned out at the time. But for me, it was confirmation that something unusual did happen. I got a 35-millimeter photograph of it, but I didn't even know who to show it to. I knew no one that was involved with the topic or interested in the topic and just kind of put it away and wondered for two years if I'd ever find out in my mind, I mean, I'm an educated person, what this advanced technology was that both my husband and I saw. And I, I never pursued it any more at all, actually. And then two months and this is significant. If you, don't, if you don't read my book, you don't know this data exists, and, and I do have it on, on the website for all to see because I've gone to extreme lengths to have this photographic data uh, explained to me at university and military level, and across the board no one could tell me what, what these are. They can tell me what they're not, but uh, they cannot be explained or denied. But anyway, two months before the mass sighting, after wondering for two years, uh, you know, would I ever find out what these things were, why we saw them together, et cetera, I see three orbs. This was January 97. Three orbs, but giant at a distance, in a line. And they were uh, northwest direction. And I'm thinking to myself, now, wait a minute. They're in an equidistant line. They're amber 
they're hovering for minutes, very similar to 95, although they were at a distance. And then they started imploding from the right to the left, the first one on the right, and then the middle one, and then the left one, very, very slowly. And I thought, geez, you know, that was very similar to 95. Mentioned it briefly to my hubby, and the next night he was at a medical board meeting, and I noticed the same three orbs are now in front of South Mountain. Now, I knew they were in front of South Mountain, which is just south of the airport, because there's red blinking lights on top of the mountain to alert uh, airplanes coming into the uh, Sky Harbor International Airport that there's uh, mountains there. Uh-huh. And they were in front and lower than those lights. And I thought, okay, enough. I'm getting my video camera. And I ran downstairs, get outside, and it was fully charged. And I get about 18 seconds worth, the battery goes dead. And I thought, whoa. And I go in and I hook up the battery. I go outside. It's about 8 o'clock. They're gone. About a half hour later, my husband comes up the drive. And I go outside, and I said, honey, remember I told you about those three lights far northwest last night? Well, about a half an hour ago, they were right in front of South Mountain. As I'm pointing, they reappear in the same spot. It was, like, really freaky. And I said, oh, my goodness, I've got to get a picture of this. Now I run upstairs, grab my 35-millimeter. As I'm ready, and I jump out on the balcony, as I'm ready to shoot the three, suddenly six appear on top, totally equidistant from each other, massive span over a mile wide, I was shaking because not having an explanation for 95, I thought, oh, my God, what is this, a mothership or a fleet? I mean, it was just so unusual, and it was it was unnerving, and I started to shake. And if you look at the pictures, the very first picture in that series is, little, is wavy because I was shaking. <laughs> oh, wow. And the second one, yeah, and the second one is very significant. Because if you look at that picture, it shows five lights with the center light being brighter than the two on each side with two underneath Mm -hmm. it. Well, two months later, during the mass sighting, thousands of people would describe the phenomena of a silent mile-wide formation, V formation of lights, five lights in a row in a V shape with two trailing. Well, this was two months before. And I got the same exact thing that people would describe two months later. And I continued photographing. And as I'm photographing, whatever this was that I caught head on started turning. And you could see that it was a V-shape. And and I have to say, Barbara, I I was so um, shaken up by it, really, because it was so unusual. It was so massive. And not having an explanation for the close sighting in 95 I called around and found air traffic controllers finally at Sky Harbor International Airport who saw the same thing at the same time. And, and, you know, you you talked about the cover-up. I don't really get into the cover-up, although astronaut Edgar Mitchell, uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell really gets into it in the bonus features of the DVD, and he's amazing in the documentary because he was being conferred with while it was happening in real time, the mass sighting. Um, But anyway, but I I have to say the the night before when I saw these things in front of my face in the the distance, I ran in and picked up the paper and called the uh, Arizona Republic and got someone on the phone. I said, please get somebody out there quick. There's some strange lights in front of South Mountain. By By the time I finished my sentence, they were gone. And I didn't sleep well that night, but I figured there must be a logical explanation. And the next morning I called the Arizona Republic again, and I said, did anybody call last night to 
describe strange lights or report strange lights in, in front of South Mountain. She gets off. She gets right back on. She said, nope, nobody called. Well, I know I called. So uh-huh. I said, well, be that as it may, my husband and I did see something that was unusual. Um, you know, can you give me any advice on who to call? And she said, uh, you know, uh, call Luke Air Force Base because sometimes they send out experimental maneuvers that they don't tell the public about. And that sounded reasonable. So, uh, you know, just to check up, I called Luke Air Force Base, and I try to be very professional. My husband and I are both physicians, and we saw some strange lights in front of South Mountain last night. Do you have any idea what they might have been? And I have to say, from the (laughs) get-go, whoever answered the phone uh, didn't want to hear about it. She said they didn't come into Luke Air Force Base, and they didn't come out from here, so we had nothing to do with them. And she was really uppity. And I said, well, you know, I'm just trying to find, I'm sure there's a logical explanation. I'm just trying to find out what that might be. Uh, Can you help me out here? I want to sleep tonight. She said, well, you said it was in front of South Mountain. Maybe they saw something at the airport. And that's when I proceeded to, now it was a mission, I proceeded to call the airport, the FAA, and I asked them if they had seen anything. And the uh, operator was very nice. She says, let me ask the uh, air traffic controllers if they saw anything. She got off the phone, and it was about five minutes. I mean, it was really forever. And she finally got back on, and she said, actually, there was a group here last night that did see something strange, and a couple of them are here this morning. I said, please, (laughs) please put someone on the phone just so I can confirm what we saw, if we saw the same thing. Well, Again, it took forever to get anybody on the phone, and I have met this fella, and he's very low-key. And he gets on the phone. He was more excited than me. He said, did you see the six flights that were equidistant from each other hovering in a formation last <laughs> night at about 8.30? He says, actually, there were three. They were there. There were three at, at 8 o'clock. I said, I saw them, too. He says, I can't believe you saw them. And he really is a really low-key guy, but he was very <laughs> excited. He, and he was very forthcoming at the beginning. There were, there were a bunch of them were very forthcoming at the beginning. What happened was that um, suddenly they see these lights appear over Class B restricted airspace. There's a 30-mile radius around the center of the airport. Anyone that goes into that airspace, uh, especially at 1,000 feet altitude as these phenomena were, must call into the tower, and no one did. And suddenly they appeared, and they got a little nervous, and they looked on radar. They did not show up on radar. Oh, so wow. they took their binoculars to look, and in their own words, they described six points of light, totally equidistant from each other, massive span over a mile wide, that seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to. And you would also hear this two months later during the mass sighting. Some people just saw lights, orbs. They called them points of light, but giant orbs. Other people actually saw craft, and we'll get into that. But this is what they described were, were points of light that seemed to be attached to something that actually turned against the wind. While I was taking the pictures, by the way, this is this was happening in, in real time as they're seeing it. One of them was a meteorologist and, and knew what he was talking about, and he said it turned against the wind as a unit and then elevated slowly and moved behind South Mountain. So I said, so what were they? And there was silence. And then finally, one of the air traffic controllers said, beats me. I said, you're air traffic controllers. You're supposed to know what's in our airspace. They did not have a clue. They ruled out any 
earthly possibility from planes, helicopters, balloons, uh, the Chinese lanterns. They even considered that maybe they were um, skydivers, okay? But, um, you know, after it happened, they said they're – and flares, by the way. And they said there, there was nothing that they could ever imagine it being, okay? And we kept in contact. I continued photographing these phenomena up into and including March 13th. Now we're to the to the really the big date because on March 13th, 1997, while thousands of people were looking skyward on purpose to look to catch a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp comet, they also caught a glimpse of these mile to two mile wide in some very credible reports. Either these orbs that seem to be attached to something in a V or boomerang shape, and some people saw a triangle shape, or craft. And there's a 12-year compilation of, which is really amazing. I mean, whatever people have heard, and again, unless they've they've read the book, there is was so much misinformation out there that once the mass sighting happened, I, I, it was so frustrating to, to hear what was going on as the months went on, which we'll get into, that, you know, but once thousands of people saw what I saw, I pushed my whole medical career aside for four years to try to find a logical explanation to what I witnessed and photographed. I have yet to find it. If anything, it opened a whole, a whole new world to me that ultimately, as a scientist, as a physician, as an experiencer and certainly as an educator. Um, one of the things I've done uh, with my, my medical de- degree starting in 76 was doing health tips uh, in NBC with Jessica Savage, if you remember that name. She was actually my mentor and okay. uh, and have been doing medical reports for uh, NBC here in Phoenix as well as USA Cable and then started my own company to produce video and workbook curriculums. And we'll talk about that too because I'm working on one for kids now. Um, so, you know, when this fell in my lap, I mean, I, I really felt obliged to, to try to find a logical explanation. But at any rate, what, what happened on March 13th was that not only, and that's the other reason I came forward, was not only to set the record straight, but there's so much mis- and disinformation out there. Whatever the audience has heard, that it was one or two events, that, um, you know, et cetera, whatever, um, there were many events going on. And, and actually starting on March 13th around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there were daylight sightings in Arizona, 5.30, there were Native Americans that were seeing them in New Mexico. The 7 o'clock hour, there were people seeing them in California. And then the bulk of the reports came in. Again, people were looking up at the sky when it got darker between 8 and 10, when most people were out and about, um, in Arizona. And that's when most of the reports came in. And um, during be- between that time, uh, there was actually a parade. As, as I started to mention, um, it wasn't just these orbs that people were seeing, but there were eight or nine or even ten different craft that people were seeing, and they're very different. If you go on the phoenixlights.net, the phoenixlights.net website, and go to the GAP page, G-A-P, the Geospatial Animation Project, it's Mm -hmm. a 12-year compilation of thousands of reports from the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, Arizona MUFON Mutual UFO Network, a village labs, which actually was the clearinghouse. Uh, it was a computer lab here, uh, and it was a clearinghouse for most of the reports. And uh, also Councilwoman Frances Barwood, and we'll get to her in a second, who was the only 
elected official that even innocently asked for a an investigation months later in May, and she was plastered. I mean, the ridicule and the snickering and the jokes uh, were oh, rampant yeah. in 97, um, which was, I was very happy to stay anonymous <laughs> for seven years. Um, but but anyway, getting back to the mass sighting, uh, not only were people seeing different crafts, I mean, some of these crafts, if you look at them now, whether it was one craft that could morph into looking differently, and they're beautifully illustrated on the Gap page by uh, Larry Lowe. And uh, Michael Tanner was one of the ma- major contributors to this, and uh, he is no longer with us, but his his work will be out there because it's amazing. When you see the different craft um, that people saw, uh, whether it was one craft that could morph into looking differently or the perspective from where the person was standing or a parade, because, again, mm-hmm. there were multiple things happening at the same time throughout the state and beyond. Uh, and at 11.30, actually, there, uh, the 11 o'clock hour, there was uh, two commercial airlines that were approaching Las Vegas, and they saw one of these mile-wide craft just covering Vegas. I mean, that's a story in itself that I get into uh, in the book that uh, one of them confided in me and, and said that I could reveal the story of, of uh, them seeing this, trying to report it, and uh, actually being, uh, you know, having an experience where they were at 30,000 feet after they tried to report it, um, of a military jet whizzing by them really, really close and flares being uh, deployed. It was just bizarre for them and uh, and on and on. But And then at 3, 3 a.m., and these sightings continued, by the way, but as, as I mentioned, the bulk of reports was between 8 and 10 when people were out, but they continued. And at 3 a.m., there was a call to the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, by an alleged Luke Air Force crewman, very detailed. We have some of that uh, report, uh, recorded report in the documentary, and, of course, I share it in the book, very detailed, that one of these craft, mile-wide craft, was hovering right over central Phoenix at 7th Avenue and Indian School, and military jets were sent out to intercept it, get gun camera film, and we heard that they did. And there were civilians that saw this happening, by the way. And as the jets got closer, the lights started to dim, and then the entire thing blinked out and disappeared. Unbelievable. Wow. And, and actually, the the crewman said that he was one of the people to help the pi- his, one of the pilots out of his aircraft because he was so shaken up by what happened. <laughs> and other people also described. I mean, this is for for real, and it was very detailed, very professional. Um, and and other people would describe these orbs detaching from the main object, going out into the environment, and then redocking with it later. Other people would say that it glided, uh, most people would say that it glided right over their heads, I mean, rooftop level. Some people said they could have thrown a rock at it, and totally silent. And, and then they would see it take off at blank speed without even displacing the air. I mean, incredible technology. Um, if you look yeah. at the pictures on the, the Gap page, one of them actually splits in two and then wow. shoots straight up into the air. You know, I mean, just incredible you- technology. What you just described is what I experienced in 66 when one landed on my campus and when it took off, there was no noise and it, it drifted over my dorm, blanked out the sky, and mm-hmm. it, was, it just went, and it was 
gone, and there was no air displacement. There was no sonic boom. It was sort of like, what the heck was that? Right. <laughs> and you can imagine, yeah, you can imagine how, and I'm sure you'll you'll agree, Barbara. I mean, we'll get into that if you if we want. Um, you know how it affected people at such a deep level. That that's part of my research and and part of the book that I really really enjoyed uh, exploring because it, it's not just the nuts and bolts of the crafts themselves. And and certainly, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, well, you know, what was it? And, and, you know, I don't know what they were, but I know that they were. And it's time we get this topic out in the open, we address it, we accept it, and we study it so we can find out who's driving these things, as well as move forward in our own evolution. Because, yeah. The one thing that I'm I'm so impressed with is in in your first book, um, you I know after after we did the interview um, for Patrick's show, which was a paranormal show, I called you and I said, okay, now still, because all throughout here are are hints that there was some something spiritual going on at the same time, and. You know, you you had to admit that there there had to be something of a spiritual lever going on here because, I mean, you've had spiritual experiences. So, um, well, and, and I, I can get really get it, get into that because you know first first I'll say that I do not believe in coincidence any longer. I mean, and, and oh, you know, no. being the healthy skeptic, it took me a long time. <laughs> I mean, I did not want to come forward, and I, you know, I'm still looking for a logical explanation. But just just to give you some for instances, and we'll get into the whole spiritual thing because that's a very very important component of all this. Uh, and this is too six months before the mass sighting, I was invited to present. Pre- present my substance abuse program. I have a, a, a uh, I produced a, a video and workbook curriculums on AIDS and teen pregnancy and substance abuse prevention education that have won all kinds of awards and discovery education is distributing as we speak. And I was invited to present my substance abuse prevention program at the Gila Bend Indian Reservation, which is uh, in between, and if you're on the photo page of the Phoenix Lights Network website, the first picture I put there uh, is a picture of uh, the landscape that we see, um, the city skyline, but there's two mountains in the in the background. Um, one on the left is South Mountain, and the airport is right in front of that. And then some miles back uh, are the Estrella Mountain Range, and uh, they intersect at one point. And the Gila Bend Indian Reservation is in that basin in between South Mountain and the Estrellas. And after the mass sighting, um, I started to notice that the pictures that I had been accumulating, 35-millimeter photographs, um, were showing these phenomena popping up right in that area. So I called them up and I said, did anybody, and they don't talk to outsiders, but I helped them out and they were very nice and and open. Um, I said, did anybody happened to see strange lights on March 13th, and they started to giggle. And I said, is that funny? And they said, are you kidding? We've been looking up at them for centuries. We call them sky people, light beings. (laughs) They're part of their culture. I had no idea. That was the first I had heard of it, Barbara, and it really sent me on another journey to, to investigate that more. And what I found out, not only that these things have been happening since human documentation began and you know they're they're in the writings the Marian writings and uh and india writings and um and even in the bible ezekiel's wheel and so forth but oh yeah the na- yeah the native cultures 
um, are very, very open to these phenomena as being real. The Hopi even have uh, protocols to invite them in. And Mm -hmm. uh, what they shared with me was, um, first of all, many Native cultures, uh, indigenous cultures, believe that these orbs are ancestors and that they're coming to give them comfort and inspiration and motivation. And certainly I've been motivated to do this for whatever <laughs> reason. But um, but they also mentioned that the Estrellas, that's how it got its name, because the Spaniards of the day either, you know, saw these orbs or heard the lore or whatever, and Estrella means star in Spanish, and named the mountains the Estrellas. And they believe that there is actually a portal or gateway in that area, which, and I'm not saying it's definitive, but if you just look at my data, I always say it mm-hmm. speaks for itself. Um, it is suspect because these phenomena keep popping up in that area, so it could be so. But anyway, getting back to the to the mass sighting, uh, it was it was just an unbelievable experience in real time and long term. People were transformed. Um, you know, the the movie Independence Day had been really popular, like it it really started, uh, I I think, like six months before. It was really, really out there. And we are so inundated, we get into this in the documentary, with threat, 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 and harm, harm, harm from from the media, from uh, movies and so forth, that, um, you know, Dr. Gary Schwartz, who's the head of the, uh, the Consciousness Study Department at the University of Arizona, and he's in the documentary, makes a very poignant statement. He says, you know, if you're inundated with threat and harm, how do you think you're going to feel when you see something (laughs) that you thought was going to give you, you know, fear? You're going to fear it. And that's what happened uh, actually in in real time, especially with children, who interestingly were usually the first ones to see this mile-wide craft or or, uh, orbs coming, uh, V-shaped orbs uh, of of orbs coming towards them, jumping up and down, Independence Day, Independence Day. But as it got closer, a calmness came over everyone, adults and children alike, and they felt connected to the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. In fact, they wanted to run after it and, and get in the cars and have their parents, you know, follow it. And uh, and and talk about long term. Uh, I mean, still today. I mean, this is 19 years later. I'm still getting emails from people who, you know, uh, it touched people at such a deep, deep level. Uh, you know, helicopters and holograms and um, uh, balloons and whatever don't 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 do that to people. I mean, they really, really touch people at a very, very very deep level and we'll get into to more more of that if you'd like but um but anyway as far as the the uh how the uh, what happened after the mass sighting i mean about a week later um and i i get into you know a lot more detail in the book and some very poignant paranormal experiences happened after the mass sighting but one of them was um you know when i a week before actually, or a couple weeks before, um, it was getting ridiculous because I kept on running out and taking pictures of these orbs in different formations. And uh, even though the video, if anybody sees the video, doesn't do it justice because in the video 
these lights are much smaller they're they flicker they're white in fact we have a pilot in the in the documentary who worked with with flares and was in vietnam and, and a, he's a commercial pilot and saw one of these crafts go right over his head and he described these canisters of swimming like like you know like canisters in the ceiling um mm-hmm. of swimming light i mean the light did not reflect down at all and uh at, at any rate um there there is so much more to the story that, that that I can tell you, but uh as far as what happened after the mass sighting, not only did I push my professional life, my medical career aside to to keep an intricate, intricate journal of everything, but a couple of weeks before um I had finally showed the video to some of my friends, and this is how close I was, Barbara. A friend of a friend had a neighbor who had a friend who knew the past president of MUFON, which I never heard of, Mutual UFO (laughs) Network. So I gave him a call and I said, you know, I, I been, you know, I have a picture from '95 that I know is authentic, and it's, you know, I'd like somebody to tell me what it is. Do you know anybody that I could um, meet with? Plus, I've been seeing these lights at a distance. Now he had not heard about it, but there were other people actually that were taking. Uh, pictures for days before, like I was. In fact, one of them, Steve Blonder, was so impressed by these orbs in different formations that he called MUFON up to his balcony during the mass sighting on March 13, 1997, and they uh, he actually caught the arrowhead of five lights. That's miraculous. I mean, this this video is so cool. Again, the, the, the lights in the video don't do it justice, but the formation itself, I mean, you could see that those lights are either attached to something or have a force field in between. Um, just just amazing. But at any rate, um, he refers me, this, the, uh, this past head of MUFON refers me to a field investigator for the following week, and we make an appointment to get together on uh, Wednesday. He calls on Tuesday to say that the then state director, Tom Taylor, couldn't be there because his mom had passed on Saturday. Could we postpone? Now, it was getting ridiculous that I was kept running out to do these things. I wanted to find out what was going on, and the only window of opportunity I had for the next two, three weeks was Friday morning at 10 o'clock. He says, fine, great. Well, the night before... I'm looking out the window and see one light about 8.20. And I just noted the time because I had so much in the can already, I wasn't going to jump up and take a picture of it. But I Uh noted the time. And about an hour later, I see one lone light far south, which was unusual because for the weeks before, I was seeing these orbs information in the same general area now it was like in a totally different place in the sky which i thought was really unusual so i i just noted the time and it was about a quarter of 10 of 10 the the you know before the news comes on uh they usually do a little promo about 10 minutes 15 minutes before and they mm-hmm. were in the middle of the promo and all of a sudden i see the same six lights that had popped up two months before, in the same location. And and I, w- I won't get into the story here. I'll let people read it. But the, the 35 millimeter that I took two, mon- two months before at the time had not turned out. I was told they were blank, but we did discover that we did have pictures later. But at any rate, so I was very excited to get out there and videotape this thing because um, I had a meeting with the guy the next day. 
okay, because here mm-hmm. I get outside, I, I videotape, I get the three endpoints of a giant V, and I was very excited that I had something in my hand. As I as he opens the door, the first thing he says to me is, did you see the mass sighting last night? And for me, it was just another night. Yeah. I said, no. I, I said, I don't know. I said, I saw something similar to two months ago that I told you about. In fact, it was the same exact thing in the same exact location, and I even called the air traffic controllers who said they, again, saw it over Class B restricted airspace, a 1,000 feet altitude. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. Hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, saw these mile-wide V formations of lights and craft, and NBC was coming to interview him in a half an hour. I said, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, I used to do health reporting in the early 80s for, for NBC. This was 97. I said, but somebody might recognize me, and I don't know what we're dealing with, if it's a hoax or military or whatever, but it's not about me. And, Barbara, it's never been about me. It's about the data. And mm-hmm. I said, hey, take a, take a you know copy of my video, share it with whoever you like. I'm out of here. And I, I get home at 4.30 when the first news came on that afternoon, my video was plastered on every news station. It was unbelievable. Now, of course, it was the big news of the of the night. It was unbelievable. It was so exciting because, you know, finally yeah. people would see what we saw. And by 9 o'clock, there were a couple other videos, like the Arrowhead video and also a boomerang video, which is uh, we'll get into has become very controversial. But at any rate, um, that blew me away. I mean, once I knew that thousands of people saw what I had been seeing, it really sent me on a journey, and a week later, I see my video again on the news, and they're interviewing a fella right in Tempe, right near Arizona State University, who has this computer you know, lab that is actually on the side. He has been analyzing UFO pictures and video from all over the world for like 20 years or so, and he's showing from his database the same exact thing, these orbs and triangle formations from all over the world. And that really got me. I mean, I was like, whoa, I mean, this is happening worldwide. I knew nothing about this topic. So I continued keeping a, a journal of everything. And you know what was very interesting, Barbara? There was no investigation as far as we were told. There was no explanation. People would go, and in fact, people called Luke Air Force Base, and they denied that anybody called there, and yet they got the number from the National UFO Reporting Center from the Luke Air Force Base when it was happening. And we also uh-huh. now have a 911 Phoenix police operator who came up to me after uh, I did a presentation a few years ago, and she said, you know, I heard that the police said that they didn't get any calls. I said, well, that's what they said. She said, well, I'm here to tell you I just retired, and we got hundreds and hundreds of calls. She's amazing in the documentary. And, um, you know, there's so much more to the story that that, uh, people don't know, including the fact that, again, there was no investigation, no explanation. It was uncanny because, you know, even as a public uh, safety issue, I mean, this went really low over people's heads, and they're saying, what? What happened on March 13th? Well, yeah. in May, in May, the former uh, vice mayor and uh, councilwoman, Frances Emma Barwood, 
was asked by uh, actually media, um, you know what, you know what was going on, if there was any investigation, and during the council meeting, and and her constituents also were calling her, and she said, "Look, I've gotten a lot of questions. Um, maybe we should look into this." And and I have to tell you, not only did not one person say a word, and they just continued on with other dealings. Um, which was very disconcerting for her because they just ignored her. Um, Mm -hmm. But then she, I mean, I'm telling you, they had such, uh, I mean, really mean, nasty uh, cartoons in the paper and stuff about her and and all this kind of stuff, um, which really was very uh, disconcerting for for anybody that came forward because uh, even though there was one uh, news reporter here uh, at one of the stations, and he actually saw it. And he was on it. <laughs> he wanted to find out what was going on. So he did an amazing job. He did amazing, amazing uh, reports. But um, but other than that, I mean, the, the the TV media was pretty, you know, pr- pretty good about covering what was going on. But Francis Barwood really got plastered by the by the print media. And what was really interesting, nothing happened. Nothing happened until June eighteenth. Now, we're talking months later. This is from March 13th, June uh-huh. 18th, 1997. Don't ask me how this happened, but the front page USA Today article talked about our mass sighting. For the first time, people outside of Arizona were hearing about what happened on March 13th, 1997. Very detailed, giant article. And um, and it opened up the, the sighting to international scrutiny. We were deluged, and they didn't have uh, social media at the time. The Internet was just getting started. And mm-hmm. overnight, it went viral. We were um, every morning show, Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, I mean, you name it, it was on it. And uh, by late morning, for the first time, late morning on June the 18th, uh, June the 19th, excuse me, the next day, um, we get an announcement, a public announcement, that the uh, former Governor Symington was calling a press conference that yeah. afternoon to reveal yeah. the culprit of the lights over Phoenix. Now, keep in mind that it's much far reach, more far-reaching than Phoenix. Like I said, it wasn't uh, only yeah. throughout Arizona, a parade, but also New Mexico and California and Nevada. But nonetheless, this is what he announced. And people took it seriously. People took mm-hmm. it seriously, and uh, there was reporters, there were witnesses there, and he comes marching out one of his aides in an alien head, alien costume with a giant alien head, yeah, and made that. a mockery of the whole thing. It was really disconcerting. In fact, for what, when when people see that uh, you know clip in the news, <coughs> excuse me, um, they hear people laughing when he brings out the. Uh, the guy with an alien head, and, and, you know, he makes a remark that, you know, people are taking things too seriously. Um, you know, it, it did really was disconcerting, especially so? from – I'm sorry? Didn't he, re- didn't he recant at some point in time? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll get oh, to okay. that. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Okay. But at the time, it was really um, very sad because uh, here there were many parents that were with children – and, you know, you mm-hmm. see a mile-wide thing that's bigger than an, an entire shopping center and a couple of football fields and whatever, and you're making a joke out of it. Um, but what happened, in fact, last year I was speaking at the, the Contact in the Desert um, conference, and one of the gals from the audience 
during the workshop says, I was there. And I hadn't heard this before. But she said after the the giggles and the laughter, because everybody was just so taken back by him, you know, bringing out this aide with an alien head costume, they turned off the um, the cameras, and people were really angry. <laughs> she said people were angry there and saying, why oh, did yeah. you do that? Okay, which I had never heard before, but it's interesting to know that that happened. At any rate, um, that really put a lid on it, I have to tell you. I mean, that, you know, from all the, you know, and you have to just think of how the story unfolded. I mean, it went viral overnight. It was getting so much international attention, they had to do something to put a lid on it. And he certainly did. And then a month later, and I have to say in that month, um, I took it upon myself to call every military base because I wanted to know from the sure. military if they knew anything. And they were just as curious as we were, I have to say. I have several of the conversations uh, that I had in in the book. And, uh, and suddenly, a month later, on July 24th, I get a call from one of the heads of PR at the Air National Guard, and she says, oh, Dr. Lynn, I think we know what those lights were back in March. And I was thrilled because I was looking for any logical explanation. She says, do you believe in all these months no one ever looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard? And the Maryland Air National Guard was in town sending off military Lutu illumination flares. And that must be what some people saw in Operation Snowbird. Now, I learned subsequently that... <clears throat> Snowbird in military terms means diversionary tactical maneuvers. So <laughs> we have no proof that they ever did send off flares because not one witness to the true unknowns describes anything that flares do. But nonetheless, it means diversionary tactical maneuvers. And, boy, it has been a diversion ever since they came came up with this. But she says that must be what some people saw. So I said, well, wait a minute. When was the Maryland Air National Guard in town? She says March 1st to the 15th. I said, were they in town in January? She says, oh, no. I said, are you sure? She said, absolutely not. I said, well, wait a minute. I said, I have 35-millimeter photographs of the same exact phenomena in the same exact location confirmed by air traffic controllers both times, two months before and the morning after the mass sighting, as hovering in Class B restricted airspace, a 1,000 feet altitude. And she says, you never told me that. <laughs> and then I said, and besides that, I said, you're trying to say that flares that cannot keep information. By then I had educated myself to anything logical, including flares, that uh -huh. cannot keep information, that drift and drop haphazardly in the wind, have huge smoke trails that are illuminated by the flare itself, and are that's what they're used for is to illuminate the area around it. Not one person described that. But even more important, traverse the entire state in a rock-solid, equidistantly spaced mile-wide V formation for hours? And she says, uh, I have a call coming in. I'll get back to you. Well, I'm yeah. still waiting. <laughs> okay. I, I can imagine. <laughs> well, anyway, um, it, actually, years passed, okay? It was the third year after the mass sighting. And, you know, and I have to say that you can only imagine how frustrating it was for someone like myself and others, of course, that saw the real deal and knew that it definitely wasn't flares, and yet, you know, people look for a logical explanation. Everybody comes from a different background, from a different upbringing, from a different belief system. Some people can't deal with this topic. Some people don't want to, and that's okay. 
everyone in their own time. But now there's the data out there if they choose to, to learn and grow. But at any rate, uh, a couple years passed. It was right before the third anniversary of the mass sighting. Actually, uh, the, the former mayor, vice mayor, uh, Francis Barr, was running for secretary of state on a platform to get answers for the Phoenix Lights. And one of the things she was asking for, as were others, was a reenactment. Okay? Fine. Yeah. I mean, shame on them for going over people's heads if it was military and then denying it for months. But nonetheless, if it was them, show us. Okay? Now, I knew I had 35-millimeter photographs. Not only did I have documentation during the mass sighting, two months before the mass sighting, but we'll talk about the, the close sighting two years before, but if you go to those pictures on the photo page, the same exact phenomena is in the background, in the same exact location there as well in 95. So I knew that I had, and we had been analyzing these pictures, so by then we had some information, and so I knew that you know I had photographs that proved that somebody did this multiple times. So yeah. if it's military, fine, do it again. Okay, well, right before the third anniversary, March 7th, uh, 2000, we get this public announcement on the radio and TV, whatever, that three Air National Guards, I believe it was New York, Michigan, and California, were coming into town to send off flares, to deploy flares, to show everybody the Phoenix Lights. Now, I guess they were practicing for weeks or whatever, <laughs> but it was confirmation for the witnesses that it definitely was not flares. It was a failure for them. They were supposed to do a two-week run, and they ended it the second day. Because, And if you go to the news page on the phoenixlights.net um, uh -huh. website and you scroll down, I think it's the second column, you'll see AZ Family. Uh, that's a CNN affiliate. does a wonderful report, and it actually has footage of their attempt to reenact the Phoenix Lights. And it was a joke. I mean, talk about a joke. Um, they tried to make a triangle. It was upside down. It fell apart immediately. It did what flares do. And yeah. that really, really confirmed for the witnesses that it definitely was not flares. And I have to say, to this day, and that's the only explanation they ever came up with, uh, they never addressed the craft, by the way, never addressed the craft. But they they couldn't they couldn't let the videos, which is a handful of videos, that they had to do something with because it was hard evidence. And when you really, again, look at the data and you realize that, you know, what can they come up with and the, and the videos don't do it justice, but it could be, for the untrained eye, mistaken for flares, okay? So they, whoever came up with it was brilliant, I have to tell you. But uh, nonetheless, that was their shot to, you know, uh, to really put it to rest. And, and what they put to rest was that it definitely was not flares. And to this day, they have never been reenacted or, or explained. And, and I have to say, just recently, in fact, I'm going to be revealing, uh, I just posted something on the Phoenix Lights Network. If anybody's on Facebook, Phoenix Lights Network Facebook page, if you want to take a peek at that, which we're revealing this year for the 19th anniversary, just recently, a few weeks ago, we were alerted to a new um, uh, uh, study that was done by a fellow, now that we have the better technology, of the boomerang video. That was the video that was really under fire for, and there's two boomerang videos. 
One is a little haphazard, so I've never used it in anything because it could possibly be flares, although not one person has described flares. But the other one is so rock solid. I mean, if you just look at the video, it's just an awesome, awesome video. But nonetheless, um, they put that question out there. Well, this fella actually uh, uh, analyzed the boomerang again and really slow-moed it down to where it couldn't possibly be flares. They don't move, I mean, it's a hair. They are so rock solid and and equidistant from each other. And a boomerang shape plus what really, really made the difference in this analysis was that in the arrowhead video, there was one light that split that we knew did that, which was quite, you know, unique in and of itself into two. Well, in this now that he slow mode it down so much, you could see that one of the lights in the boomerang video also splits in two. Okay. Wow. Well, flares can't do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> flares can't do that. So that that really puts the, the nail in the coffin there, and I hope puts it puts the flare thing to rest. And and all you really have to do is look at the data, and and flares are so significantly different than the true unknowns. But nonetheless, that was the only explanation they they ever came up with. So you know now. Not only do we have, you know, like you mentioned, I mean, this there is, this has never been explained. And these phenomena not only are appearing globally, and, and what's really interesting, when I came forward in 2004, finally, um, because I ultimately ended up with a 750-page journal that I didn't know what I was going to do with. I mean, I really did not want to come forward, and yet I was accumulating such compelling data, including the fact that, we these phenomena have been here since human documentation began. I mean, there are um, etched out uh, uh, drawings in in caves in Peru and so forth that uh, have long extinct animals in the pi- pictures. And there's a what we would call a UFO in the sky. How did what, how did they even come up with that? And certainly, as I mentioned, the Sumerian writings in India and uh, as well as the Bible have references to very similar phenomena and in the uh in the 15th centuries i mean if you just uh fast forward to the 15th and 16th centuries we have uh pictures and frescoes of people on the ground looking up at you know i mean it's a ufo i mean you can see it as plain as can be and even beings in the ufos uh and then um fast forward again a hundred years a hundred years before our mass sighting in 1897 April, March and April of 1897, there are reports in the Kansas paper and and, uh, in Washington and California as well as um, uh, Canada of what they would describe as a massive, massive airship that had removable lights. Now, sound familiar? Okay. And this was six years before the Wright brothers took flight. So what was that? Okay. And then um, during World War II, uh, every year, by the way, if there's anyone out there that's in the uh, Phoenix area on March 13th this year, every year uh, we've been blessed by Scottsdale Harkins, uh, Shea the Harkins uh, uh, Company, which uh, has uh, multiple theaters here, 
um, actually had our world premiere of our documentary in 2005. And uh, every year now has become a tradition uh, trying to keep this alive. Um, We have a, a big event on March 13th. It's coming up this March 13th, uh, Sunday, March 13th, at the Scottsdale Hark and Shea Theater. Uh, the announcement will be on the website and also the Phoenix Lights Network for anybody that's interested. Um, we're sold out every year. We show the, our documentary, which is one over a dozen International Film Festival Awards, uh, as well as speakers. And we have Travis Walton this year uh, from Fire in the Sky. That story is his 40th anniversary uh, mm-hmm. of his experience. And we have... Um, Navajo, Arizona, Navajo Rangers, who are amazing. I mean, here's law enforcement. Um, two Navajo Rangers came up to me at the International UFO Congress a couple of years ago and said, you know, there was a big sighting the day before March 13th, 97, on the Navajo Nation, and they thought it was going to be a big deal because these orbs appeared and we're going around in a circle and then going counterclockwise, and they are so open to these things, and so they really welcome them that the whole community got their lawn chairs and they were watching it for hours. So well, I mean, it's really interesting now, now when, I, you, when you hear I these stories. Now, I'm happened, sorry. No, that's okay. It, it happened. Um, I was just waiting for you to run out of breath. Um, okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I get a little passionate when I get going. I listen. That's I know exactly how you feel. Um, okay, so this massive sighting happened almost twenty years ago. Um, right, Nine, nineteen years. Okay, so since then, have you continued to have the orbs or the sightings or anything like that? It can't have been empty. I mean, I'm sorry. You, what? I mean, do you still are you still getting the the sightings and the orbs and things well, like I, that? The around? last time I I saw that, yeah, the la- they were happening worldwide. Well, I was going to say when I came forward in 2004, finally, uh, after much soul searching and and condensed the book to 250 pages, the best of of what I had found, and finally came forward. Uh, you know, the the official and accepted, except for the witnesses and investigators, of course, explanation of the Phoenix Lights was that it was merely military illumination flares. Well, it's not just just me. It's a lot of people that have contributed. And and as we mentioned, 10 years after the mass sighting, right Mm -hmm. after the 10th anniversary, the former Governor Symington actually came forward to say that he saw it. He saw it. He saw one of these craft. And when you when you listen, and we have part of his uh, report in the documentary, um, he says that, you know, it was bigger than anything you can imagine, and it definitely wasn't flares, and in his estimation, it was otherworldly. Okay? So yeah. and that was a big step, I have to say, a big step for disclosure to have uh, an elected official, a former elected official, you know, be brave enough to come forward to say that he actually saw it, and um, which which really you know opened it up even more. And now, because of social media, which has been such an amazing, amazing tool, uh, pro and con for the UFO phenomena, um, but nonetheless for the Phoenix Lights, if you go on YouTube, all over the world now, when people see similar phenomena, whether it's the orbs or these mile wide. Uh, you know, these huge uh, V-shape or, or triangle-shaped craft, they look up and say, whoa, there's the Phoenix Lights. And that's pretty cool, Barbara, I have to say, <laughs> that, that oh, people absolutely. have acknowledged 
the Phoenix Lights worldwide as as the most witnessed, the most documented, the most important mass sighting in, in modern history. And, you know, going back to the, the history of these phenomena, you know, uh, I was starting to say that there's, at, at our um, presentations on on uh, the anniversaries uh, at the Scottsdale Hark and Shea, the last couple of years we had this gentleman, and he is in the bonus features. He tells his story of what happened. 93-year young. He, he just passed uh, a few months ago. And he tells the story as a French pilot seeing the same exact phenomena. They called them Foo Fighters. Not the band, yeah. but for these these orbs <laughs> that were going around each aircraft, and every side thought the other side had this advanced technology, and it wasn't until after the war that Germany and Japan and the United States tried to find out what these were, and to this day they never have. But these have been going on for for many, many, many. I mean, since human documentation started, and not only do the native cultures are they open to it, but I, in my inquiry, found out that there were uh, flaps, they call them, similar phenomena that happened in Hudson Valley in the 50s and um, Hudson Valley, New York, as well as uh, in Belgium uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. And they're really a, uh, a model for what should happen because in Belgium what they did was that the government and the military and universities and scientists join forces together to try to analyze these things and find out what these things were. Um, and, and even in the 50s, uh, the Lubbock Lights, I don't know if you ever heard of them, but they yeah. were very similar to these phenomena. And, uh, and then the um, U.K. had their sightings in the 90s as well. And what, what I found out in, in my intensive inquiry was that one month before our mass sighting, there was a mass sighting in St. Petersburg, Russia, and a couple people got video of the phenomena, and they're exactly they're two, very, two different things, very different, these, the videos, but they're exactly what the conclusion was on the gap page from the 12-year study on two of the, two of the uh, craft that people saw here. So the same exact thing was appearing here statewide and beyond as appeared in St. Petersburg on February 19th, 1997, which I think is really very poignant, I must say. <laughs> and and oh, they absolutely. too. I mean, yeah, yeah. And Russia has been studying these phenomena for 30, 40 years. I mean, they, they admit that. So, you know, these have been around for a long time. And, you know, the, and, and now, you know, we're talking about the nuts and bolts of, of the phenomena and, and the description of the mass sighting, but there is so much more. Uh, to this story, if you want to get into the connection um, oh, to yeah. all unexplained phenomena, okay? Can we do that? Absolutely. Yeah, um, because what what happened when I was uh, interviewing witnesses was that a number of them had mentioned that uh, they had had near death experiences as children that was reawakened by the mass sighting, and that yeah. really blew me away <laughs> because I did too as you have read. And yeah. in the book I really get into the to the whole story with that, which changed my life at eight years old. I mean I thought everybody knew the secret and I thought everybody was empath and psychic and all that good stuff. Um but nonetheless uh, you know, it really impacted me at a very, very deep soul level at that time. And what happened with these people was when I when they were telling me that their near death experiences as children was reawakened, I thought, geez that happened to me too. 
right before the mass sighting. And I Uh thought, could there possibly be a connection between all unexplained phenomena? Well, I I would think there almost has to be, because I know when when I had my sighting in the 60s, that's what woke me up to all the spiritual stuff and, and set me on the pathway I've been on for the last, oh, God, almost. 60 years, 70 years. There I mean, you go. It, there you it, go. It, and you're not, the people that I have, you know, come in contact with um, who have had similar experiences, nobody was frightened of it. It was just Oh, well, that's calming... really important. I'm glad you mentioned that. I am so glad you mentioned that, Barbara, because it's been 19 years, and there has not been one, not one report, and over 10,000 people saw this. Not one report of harm, threat, or abduction associated with the Phoenix Lights phenomenon. I can't talk for other things out there, but I can talk for the the Phoenix Lights. And and when I started investigating the possibility of a connection, I started finding such credible data at university level confirming the connection. I don't know if you've ever read the Omega Project. It's like four inches thick by Dr. Kenneth Ring at the University of Connecticut. But he came to that conclusion. Um, uh, Dr. Raymond Fowler, who did the Andreessen case, he came to that conclusion. And and many others I was finding at university level um, were not only finding, and, and I make it very simple in the book, a connection, a very, very similar connection in the experience itself. But the most profound thing about it was the after effect, the awakening, oh, yeah. the enlightenment that comes um, as part of the experience. I started calling all unexplained phenomena, not a UP, an up, mm-hmm. okay? It's an up because yes. it is an up. I mean, not only do you transform into a positive place. I mean, I, I, I was mentioning you know, the transformation in real time. Well, in long term, we had people that were witnesses to the Phoenix Lights that went into the peace movement, that went into the environmental movement, that changed their eating habits, that wouldn't eat meat anymore. I mean, just such profound transformation, positive transformation, and and a connectiveness to the universe, to the earth, and to each other at a very, very deep level. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and, and as you said, not... There are tons of sightings, and I don't know if if there are different cultures or different species out there that are connecting us or whatever, but I know the one that I experienced, there was no fear. I felt like I was connected. I felt like they were connected to home, and I don't know where they came from or anything like that, but I do know that there was a spiritual trigger that got flipped when I saw it, and it wasn't... Yeah, and and I have to admit, I was in a dorm full of, um, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old women. Nobody was screaming. Nobody was panicked. Nobody was, you know, frightened. Um, right. With Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I have noticed with all of the movies that are out there and everything, fear sells. And, you know, if you make a movie about fear, people are going to go to it and be entertained. But the reality of what the majority of these sightings does is that, that they are letting us know we are not alone. And, and you know, you mentioned that, that, the, um, that the sighting, the object, the, the ship, whatever you want to call it, moved very slowly. It meant to be seen. It was, you know, it, exactly. it, intended, 
it in, it intended people to see it and not be frightened of it. And um, it, it to me that says okay, so that's that's you know somebody they're they're telling us something. I tend to and and it's only my opinion. So and I have no proof for this at all. But I don't believe that if there ever is real contact, that it will not be through a government. It, it will have to be through the masses as a whole because, I mean, they, they probably don't even care whether we have presidents or kings or dictators or whatever. I think humanity has to get to a place where we can embrace the fact that we're not alone and that there is another community out there. But, um, you know... It, well, that's exactly why I came forward, Barbara, because... The bottom line is, and you're absolutely right, you hit the nail on the head. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, what was the Phoenix Lights about? And, you know, whoever did this, whoever did this, not only wanted to wake us up to their presence in a very non-threatening way, and there was telepathy also happening. There were people that didn't even realize that it happened to them for months until they saw something on TV, and they were together as families. I have one uh, one fellow that I describe in the book, a psychiatrist, who was with his family on his way up from Tucson to Phoenix for a, for a swim meet, and this one of the craft went right over their heads, and they were looking up at it, and yet they to- nobody talked about it. Nobody talked about it until months later, like six months later, there was something on TV, and they said, you know what? We saw that, and they actually got telepathic messages, not to be afraid. And and there were people that saw, uh, we, we have one couple that was out in Carefree um, where they were building homes, and they were there with stakes in the ground, and they mm-hmm. estimated, they're in Mensa and very well respected, and they they estimated the uh, craft to be two miles wide. They saw not only gunmetal on the bottom, but they saw windows with beings at the windows, and they they felt such a kindredship <laughs> with with whoever was there. Um, you know, it's just amazing how it really, really affected people at a deep level and, and wakes us up. I mean, the message, the bottom line message of, of the Phoenix Lights mass sighting, which yeah. happened, and, and other unexplained phenomena, by the way, because it's, it's universal. I mean, people that have near-death experiences come back with the same message, is to wake up to what you're doing to yourselves and your planet before it's too late. Yeah, you know, somebody just put something in the chat room that, that is, it's a co- Do you think that it maybe is a coincidence that um, this appeared in Phoenix and the, the Phoenix is reborn out of the ashes of the old, taking old philosophies and paradigms, killing them and, and bringing new ones forward? That absolutely is very possible <laughs> because, um, and it's, again, it's happening worldwide. But I have to say for this this biggest sighting, and we have very clear skies here. We have, you know, we don't have the buildings and, and so forth and the trees that are blocking out the the, uh, the sky. That um, whoever did this, and there's such a history in Arizona anyway um, with the native cultures here with these phenomena, um, really wanted to be seen, just as you said. I mean, they wanted to, to wake us up up to the fact that they're here in a very gentle way, but also, you know, it, 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 it makes you feel like they just, they're just pushing the, you know, people ask me that too, when do you think the military and the government are going to, you know, disclose, and God bless the people that are out there trying to make that happen, but that's why I'm doing this at a grassroots level, because that's where it's going to come from. The, the Phoenix Lights is touching one person at a time and waking them up to the new reality 
And, you know, that's what I'm trying to do, too, just, you know, not to convince anybody, but just to put the information out there so people can learn and grow and decide for themselves. But the fact is that absolutely the Phoenix Lights till today, and I get emails almost every single day or messages on Facebook from people who finally felt, you know, strong enough or they needed to share. And that's the other thing. That's the other reason I came forward, Barbara, is as a physician and certainly as an experiencer and knowing what I went through and the transformation and the book I've been told has helped a lot of other people transform to a good place that have had experiences, I, I want people to know even though most anomalies can be explained, only a small percentage cannot, but just because we don't have the technology yet to definitively define what these things are, it doesn't mean they're not real. We may just be looking on the AM dial for an FM frequency. So I want people to know that, number one, it's really important to share your experience. If you don't, and, and I've heard this time and time and time again, and as a physician I am much more sensitive to that, it festers. It's not healthy. And when you do share, and I, I offer people to please, you know, email me or message me on, on Facebook um, and, you know, tell me your story because, you know what, it's real to you. And that's okay. I mean, whatever it is, that's okay. It's, it's affected you. And to be able to share it with just one person, if it's just me, and I, and I take confidentiality very, very seriously as a physician, um, it's very healing and cathartic. So I wanted to put that out there, too, because it's really important that, you know, people do share if they've had an experience. And many people are afraid. It's getting better that, you know, now that it's getting more and more out in the open. But... People are still afraid that people are going to laugh at them or snicker or think they're crazy or whatever. And, you know, it's enough. It's enough. we just got to get this out in the open, right? Well, yeah, and, and oh, absolutely. And, you know, again, you know, I was in the 60s, and and during the 60s, if you saw a UFO, you know, how much did you have to drink? What kind of dope were you smoking? Right. Um, right. You know, you just, you, you got battered, and... What I found fascinating, usually if you get that kind of negative reaction, you just tuck it away and don't talk about it. Exactly. But I, I couldn't stop talking about it, and I knew the reaction <laughs> I was going to get. And it was my mother once said to me, why do you do that? And I said, you know, I know what I saw. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't drink and I don't do dope. So, you know, and, and yes, I may be delusional, but... but um, but I know no, it's really saw. it's really important. And by the way, Barbara, many many people coming back, and I I talk about that in the book. Coming back from near death experience, out of body experience, unexplained aerial phenomena, experiences with a mystical light, come back not only transform, but they have an urgency, an urgency mm-hmm. to share. Um, to wake people up, to let them know that, uh, you know, I call it the three A's, you know, uh, awareness of things. I mean, have your eyes open to things. I mean, it's talk about serendipities, and I'm going to get into one in a minute. But, um, you know, just be aware of what's in, in front of you. And, uh, you know, attitude, attitude is so important. I've seen it in medicine, negative you know, and positive energies really do affect your body and your mind and those around you. And, uh, you know, appreciation, appreciation for what you have. You know, we hear the the phrase, um, 
the man was crying because he had no shoes until he saw the man that didn't have feet. I mean, right. there's always something worse. Appreciate what you have, and if you know what what, what I do each each day uh, at the end of the day is, and I and I give little pointers in the book as well as as well as is ten ways to connect with these phenomena if you choose, um, and these other intelligences. But uh, at the end of the day, I I really just try to appreciate what happened during that day that that was uh whether i grew from something and learned from something or the people that i met or um whatever because i mean if you're you know and how you treat people too i mean talk about awareness of how you treat people and how you treat um animals and our earth i mean it's really it it can it can make your life so much more enriching if you're aware and have a positive attitude and appreciate uh your life and that we have this life i, I think every Everyone has come here, uh, you know, as a gift to be able to experience life and experience, uh, you know, learning and growing. And the only the only two things we take with us, and that's the other thing, uh, is is love and knowledge. And if people mm-hmm. really knew that, and that we do go on, and I do have confirmation for that, <laughs> but that's another day. Um, <laughs> but what I what I wanted to get into, if we can, is why I'm sharing now with the with the latest edition of the book. Um, I they wanted me to write a new book on what's happened since I came forward uh, since 2004. But I, I must say that not only was the work that I did on the original book, which was 750 pages and, and condensed the best and most credible data into the 250 pages, but you know, I didn't. I, there is so much in there, as you know, Barbara. That I, I would like people to at least read that first, and then I added another chapter. And in the other chapter, what I did was not only talk about some of the most. You asked about this. Some of the most recent uh, sightings. There was uh, sightings in Stephenville, Texas, very similar in 2008 to the Phoenix Lights, very similar with these orbs and these triangle craft, and they even got radar uh, from it as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, it, in April, and this is a l- another little coincidence, uh, April 21st of 2008, I had just gotten back, and, and that's another model of, of the positivity of what can happen, because when I, when I came forward in 2004, the investigators, Jim Delatoso and Michael Tanner at Village Labs, were calling the person that had the pictures because I really didn't want to come forward. Um, but in good conscience, like, as an educator, I couldn't stick what I had in a drawer. But they called that person that had the pictures Dr. X. Now, in the early 80s, when I was doing my health reporting at NBC here in Phoenix, many of the people I was working with were just getting started. And uh, when I came forward in 2004, now, one was the head of news directing at, at Fox, and the other was the head of production at ABC and so forth. And when I finally came forward and they said, you're Dr. X, well, come on over. They have been so amazing. Talk about a positive transformation. They have had open arms that are just just unbelievable how they have treated this with such respect and they knew I wouldn't come forward if I didn't do my homework and I didn't think it was important to come forward and you know if you check out uh, the Facebook page <clears throat> Phoenix Lights Network you'll see some of the TV reports and on the on the website I mean they have been amazing and they've been right on it and and you know there are times when uh you know th- 
there's there is a blimp or or a weather balloon or something that's mistaken for a UFO, and you know they just tell the story as it is without ridiculing and jokes. That's what should happen. Um, so we've really had a, a wonderful transformation uh, here in, in in Arizona that I hope happens other places, and I think it is happening. Uh, you know, on the internet, of course, there's people also posting hoax, and, and you know that's a, the unfortunate negative part of uh, of of sharing is that people try to get away with things or whatever but oh, yeah. the beauty of the mass sighting was that there was the internet was just getting started and people ask me all the time too why aren't there more pictures well you know we had those clunky cell phones do you remember those <laughs> yes Right, and they did not have cameras in them, and who carries a camera around with them, right? So we were lucky enough to get a handful of videos. So that really was the only hard evidence, but I am the only one that has 35-millimeter photographs prior to and, and after the mass sighting of the same phenomena. So we're lucky we have that, because 35-millimeter, by the way, for anybody listening, is the best way to document uh, these phenomena for analysis. Um, at any rate, getting back to the to the, uh, to the the chapter on on April the 21st I had just come back from the X conference Steve Bassett if anybody's heard that name is a, a big guy out there for disclosure he's amazing and um, he used to have a, a big conference in Washington DC and the big talk that weekend actually was about the Phoenix Lights and I walk in the door and here the phone is ringing and I answer the phone and it's one of the reporters from the cnn affiliate hi dr lynn do you see those lights out there now as i mentioned <laughs> at, at the top um, we're kind of nestled in the mountains so we lose the view from the northwest and these were uh, in the west valley and i couldn't see them and he says the phone is ringing off the hook everybody wants to know what they are so it was late i figured you know what i'll find out what they are in the morning well, the phone started at six o'clock in the morning. It was a, a radio host, and she and he says, "Dr. Lynn, can you be on the the uh, the show in two minutes?" I said, "I'm just getting out of bed." Anyway, it was amazing to hear uh, what people had seen the night before that did see it, and and these it was very similar orbs and information, and they made different formations. If you go on the news page uh, on the Phoenix Lights Network website, uh, you'll see a wonderful CNN report uh, and and some others. But at any rate, um, it was talk about going viral. Um, I, by I looked on the internet just to find out what was going on and what people saw. It had already become number one on the Drudge Report. Okay, I mean it was like within hours it was out there, and every news station was calling me to do interviews. I was running from one to the next to the next, and then I get a call from Fox in the morning that they wanted to fly me on a red eye so that I would be on live with Richard Dolan, who is uh, a ufology historian. He's wonderful. And uh, we were on at 9 o'clock in the morning in New York, and then I had to fly back right after that because I was being interviewed by Nightline in Phoenix, and we're in the middle of the interview, and the producer gets a call. And he says, hold on a second, and he goes and he's talking in the corner, and he comes with like a sad face, and I said, what's the matter? He said, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, after all this hoopla, he said, some guy just came forward to say that his neighbor was sending off road flares tied to string and balloons, and that's what the lights were last night. And everything stopped. Everything stopped. Ah. They just, the whole media... I mean, it was just media frenzy just stopped. 
It was amazing. But the reporters didn't stop looking into this. Now, by, by then, this is 2008, um, they, were, they were really uh, dedicated to find out what was going on. And they went to this guy's house that supposedly sent off these road flares, and nobody would answer the door. And finally, kids answered the door. They didn't know anything about it, okay? They asked the neighbors in the neighborhood. Nobody saw anything. Okay, except this one guy that had reported it, and they kept going back to this guy to, until he finally answered the door days later, showed one of these reporters that he had string and balloon and road flares on a chair, and the reporter said, can you show me how you did it? He said, no, I, I don't want to do that, and he refused to show him how he did it, and then days later, this one website on the net uh, uh, saw... They, they came. They did their own investigation, and uh, above top secret website um, did their own investigation and discovered that the guy that announced that he saw his neighbor sending off these road flares was actually mm-hmm. military. Military. Okay. So uh-huh. anyway, that you know that kind of put a question mark or a red flag on the whole on the whole explanation. But it's interesting. Number one, that the, the media just stopped cold once this guy came out with that explanation. But what was really amazing, Barbara, talk about a coincidence. Our documentary, when I came, actually, after the four years of pushing my whole medical career aside, I had to go back to work to help put our younger son through medical school. He's a neurologist now. And I was chief clinical consultant at the Arizona Heart Institute Wellness and Imaging Center while I condensed the book in my free time. And uh, finally came forward in 2004 with the book um, and was overwhelmed, I have to say. I mean, the, the appreciation that, that people had for the, for the work that went into it really made it all worthwhile. And I was approached by a number of filmmakers to do a film. And, of course, I would, have lo- would love to do a film and let people see and hear it from the witnesses themselves, um, but I had no time. I was I was working seven to seven at the Heart Institute, uh, doing radio programs like this into the night, doing Barnes and Noble and Borders tours on the weekend, and finally, parents saw, that saw me at Barnes and Noble invited me to come to a middle school, which I was blown away that they would even let me in the door to talk about this topic, but nonetheless, I come in and there's 200 middle school kids. In this auditorium, you could hear a pin drop. They thirst for this knowledge. Oh, yeah. And it was the first time, Barbara, it was the first time that I realized that not only do they want this knowledge, and I asked them, I asked who believes that we're alone in the universe. Not one hand went up. I said, who believes we're not alone in the universe? Every hand went up. And I also realized that there is nothing, and I'm talking zip, in our history books about this topic. And that really, I mean, that, that, that talk about a sign, <laughs> that really cued me in that I needed to do something visually. And that's when we started doing uh, the production for the documentary, which ultimately, a couple months later, um, because I, I met this one, this one fellow who was really persistent, Steve Lance. He's amazingly talented and, uh, and very well versed in this topic. And he, he, his parents live here, and he said, I'm coming in May to, uh, to visit my parents, and I'm bringing my camera equipment with me. We're getting started. I said, I don't have time to do this. I said, well, let's, you know, I stayed in Ottawa for seven years. I didn't know if other people would want to come forward. 
And Barbara, every single one I asked but one who came on later wholeheartedly said they would participate. And, and I hope people take a look at the documentary. It's, it's I, you know, I have to say it's an overview. Like if you have people out there that aren't into the topic or don't want to hear about the topic or whatever, have them watch the documentary because I really try to do a gentle overview of the whole topic um, that, that really leaves you not only – with the thought hearing it from the witnesses themselves that something really went on here that, that was profound and important. Um, but also it's a jumping off point to, to if they, you know, hopefully it'll pique their, their curiosity. But at any rate, um, uh, we finally went into production uh, in June. And, and you know, it was uh, because every uh, it was just amazing. I figured, okay, let's start. And it was so overwhelming I had to give up my job at the Arizona Heart Institute and, and really devote my, my time to the documentary. And we ended up winning over a dozen international Film Festival Awards, which is pretty amazing for not only a documentary, but certainly one of the genre, and it's evolved ever since. And, and as I mentioned earlier, we have astronaut Edgar Mitchell is in it. He's fabulous. Um, the the 93-year-young French true fighter pilot is in the uh, bonus features, and we have pilots and military, and I, I hope people take a, a peek at it. But of course, the, the book uh, has a lot more um, in, oh, in it, okay. and the, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, the the book, yeah. and I I just have the first one. I don't have the second one yet. Well, I make sure that you get the. I'll make sure that you get a copy oh. of the latest edition because you know what what I include now, which I'll share, um, which I never thought I would share, Barbara, because it's I still can't wrap my head around it. Um, you know, it's 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 just beyond my realm of of uh, just it's unfathomable to me, but. It is what it is, and because I do not believe in coincidence anymore, and the data may be important, um, when they asked me to do another book and I said, look, I'll write a chapter on what's happened since I came forward. Oh, I didn't mention, by the way, <laughs> about the documentary. Getting back, let me let me tell you about this first. Um, uh, I apologize getting off the track here, but um, when, when we fi- finally signed with a distributor, um, with Vanguard International Cinema uh, in December before this sighting. The head of the uh, company said that he wanted to um, distribute the, the uh, documentary on a Tuesday, and I said, why on a Tuesday? He said, well, he said, you know, it gives the stores, and at that time uh, Barn- uh, uh, Blockbuster and Hollywood Video was still open, and he said it gives them, the stores, a chance to get it on their shelves on Monday. And then we'll uh, release it on Tuesday morning. I said, fine. Mm-hmm. Well, the sighting on April 21st, 2000, the guy, 2008, that got incredible, and it was number one on the Drudge Report the next morning, our documentary was released that next morning. Oh, wow. Now, you can't tell me that's not a coincidence. So I don't care who did it, whether it was, you know, unknowns or this guy said it was flares, whatever. That is a little bit too much of a coincidence for me, don't you think? No, I mean, it was flying yeah, off the shelves. I, I truly believe that um, when, when you are awake enough so that you know that you're doing what the universe wants you to do, um, that everything falls into place for you. And when you step back and let the universe um, manipulate things, everything is perfect. And, and 
coincidence goes right out the window. It just it, it doesn't exist. It's there there are certain things that are meant to be and they're going to be no matter what. Sometimes you can get in the way and delay things, but exactly. if you if you let things happen, they they truly do and and I would say I would say that you certainly uh, in in trying to be as scientifically oriented as you possibly could be, have analyzed the hell out of all of this, and you come up with the same conclusion that that you know somebody else would just say, well, yeah, you're, you, yeah, of course there are UFOs. Yeah, but <laughs> I love the I love the fact that you were you were cynical. I I think that is that makes it all the more impressive because you kept at it trying to. Find out what it was, not wanting to fall into the. Of course, it's a UFO, and and you eliminated everything. I went, I read through on the website all of the things that you looked into that it possibly could have been, and I mean, you scraped the bottom of the barrel. I have to tell you, you got into stuff that. I, <laughs> Well, you know, there's a lot of a lot of myths are out there, but you're so right. I mean, first of all, going back to let the universe take you, and that's as I say in my book, um, there is a point where I don't know why the heck I have what I have because I don't know anything about it. I, I mentioned it to a friend of mine, and she says, "Lynn, if anybody can do something credible and professional with this, you can." And it's like I've been doing this for 40 years, you know. If I if 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 I can lend my expertise to to not only lend credibility to this, but but also to to get it together so it, it's meaningful for people. Then I've done my job, and that's all I, I care about. But the, but the point is that you know eventually, and that's why I, I came forward. But going back to letting the universe, I just surrendered at one point, and I won't get into the story. But I just you know looked up to the universe and said, "Show me the way. Just you know, show me the way. I'll do whatever it takes to to be professional and credible and get it to a good place." And I have to tell you, Barbara, I have just gone with that. I have surrendered and just let it happen as it happens. I don't need to do this. I have a very private, wonderful life, wonderful family. I don't need to do this. But for some reason, I need to do this. And again, it's not about me. It's about the data. That's why, you know, I I want the data to get out there. And and just to interject real real quickly, you know, one of the things I, I say in my book, which is you just alluded to, is, you know, the the song, Row, Row, Row Your Boat, Gently Down the mm-hmm. Stream, Merly, 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 Life is But a Dream. And if we take that attitude and just let it flow and just go with the flow and just be awake to what comes before you and not blow it off or, or uh, you know, take advantage of opportunities that come before you and, and feel that it's there for a reason, um, your life would be very enriched, <laughs> I have to tell you. Well, I, you know, and if yeah, you look at my life because it's, you know, uh, it's been very, very interesting life. Oh, oh! I want to just interject one thing for for the listeners, sure. uh, as, far, as far as before we get into the analysis of the close sighting. Um, you know, talk about an interesting life. I mean, I, you know, when I came back from my near-death experience, suddenly I had this amazing three-octave coloratura voice that I thought that's why I came back because I was told I was I had to come back for a reason, and uh, which many people near death in their death experience are told, um, right. and uh, and I've been searching for it ever since, and I thought that's why I came back, and I really was very fortunate and blessed to have toured professionally in, in uh, musical theater with Gordon McRae in Oklahoma and Betty Grable in Guys and Dolls. And um, I understudied Barbara Eden in Sound of Music. 
and uh, was in Alice in Wonderland on Broadway with Sherman Hemsley, the, you know, Mr. Jefferson, before he was Mr. Jefferson and famous. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the movie Raising Arizona, have you seen yeah. that Coen Brother movie? Yeah. I play the yeah. mother in that. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> okay. And what's really amazing with that, talk about a coincidence. Are you ready for this one? Which yeah. I didn't even realize until, you know, anybody that's out there that's seen the Coen Brother movie with uh, Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter and uh, John Goodman, I mean, the cast is just stellar, and Francis McDormand and William Forsythe. Um, pretty, pretty amazing cast, and it's a black comedy about a couple that uh, have quintuplets, and Holly Hunter and uh, Nicolas Cage cannot conceive, so they figure, you know, they could miss one of the one of the kids, and they <laughs> kidnap one of the quintuplets, and it's kind of a uh, an interesting story after that. But nonetheless, which which really is amazing. I was I was doing a lecture, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, you know. Um, there is a reference to your character in Raising Arizona, Florence, Arizona, and UFOs. And I said, really? I, I hadn't <laughs> looked at it from the 80s. It was actually, we we filmed it in 85, and it uh, was released in 87. And, you know, now we're talking in the two, 2000s. And I, I said, really? And I go back to look, and if anybody out there remembers, um, when right after one of the babies is kidnapped, we have a press conference at our home, which is actually the Jacoki Inn at the Phoenician Resort here in Phoenix. And they're uh, interviewing my husband, Nathan, Arizona. And one of the reporters sticks a microphone in his face and says, there's a rumor that your son was abducted by UFOs. Is there any truth to that? And my husband says, oh, please, please, please don't print that, sir. If, 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 uh, if his mama reads that, she'll lose all hope. Which is pretty <laughs> ironic, because it was yeah. ten years, ten years before the mass sighting. Wow! That the that the film was released. Plus, are you ready? Plus, yeah. there is there's one point where the camera shoots up to the baby's room when I discover that the baby is missing, and I scream. And uh, there's a long story. We'll get into the long story. But the cinematographer who worked with me for a long time on that scene, um, because I scream, and, and uh, I, that's how I auditioned. I had like a three-octave scream, uh, et cetera, went on, okay, to uh, do some wonderful films. It was one of his first films, uh, Raising Arizona. He went on to do Big and When Harry Met Sally and a whole slew of others. And... And he ended up creating and producing and directing the Men in Black series. <laughs> is that a little coincidence? It's a small okay. um, Which is, you know, it's it's just amazing when you really look at the data. It's really fun. But anyway, getting back to the closed sighting, because I, I do want to share this, because I... Um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm sharing it for the first time in the latest edition of the book. Um, when we had a sighting a year after the mass sighting in 1998 that was miraculous, I have to say, um, we had had a fog, which is very rare in Phoenix. Our humidity is usually like 14 or 9, and we had a dense fog that you could not see beyond our street. And my husband makes little jokes about all this, and he said they they could be there watching us. We, I mean, it was really eerie, okay, very eerie. And it was just starting to dissipate a little bit, and I hadn't seen anything since March 13, 1997, and this was January 
1998. And uh, I had met, as I mentioned, with the University of Arizona, Optical Science Department, Consciousness Studies Department, um, Arizona State University, Geology, uh, Anthropology, Mathematics, Astronomy Department, as well as the Brooks Institute of Photography. And the University of Arizona said to me, you know, what kind of camera are you using? I was using a cheap Canon Instamatic camera. And they said, if these lights come back, I should get you know, top-of-the-line equipment, and I just let it go, and I hadn't seen them. Well, we're standing, my husband and I are standing out on the balcony. <clears throat> there was still this fog out there, and but I could see a couple of muted lights behind his head, and I thought, wait a minute, I'm getting my camera, and, you know, I took a quick picture of it, and then I called the U of A the next morning, and I said uh, to Dr. Richard Powell, who actually worked on the Star Wars uh, stuff um, as well, and he became vice uh, president uh, of research, and he's in the documentary, an unbelievable fella, and he said, he tells me what to do and to get a top-of-the-line camera and a tell lens and a star filter and all this stuff, and I go out the next day um, and buy all the equipment, and that night they came back. And I was really excited that I got pictures on this new camera, and I got in touch with a Village Labs, and I said, you know, I've been seeing these lights again the last couple nights. Um, why don't you alert the other videographers, the handful of videographers from March 13th? And again, which was really interesting, talk about serendipity, is that we were all positioned at different north, south, east, and west. Okay? Well, that third night... The lights start appearing, and all of us caught video of this 40-mile-wide, 20-minute array of mirror straight lines and mirror images and uh, little triangles over here in Buckeye that would appear and then disappear and then appear again in the same spot and disappear and then appear again in the same spot. And then the final thing, giant pyramid of three lights, again, in the same spot where South Mountain and the Australias intersect. And uh, and I thought, wow, now I have video of four from four different directions, north, south, east, and west, that uh -huh. we couldn't do on March 13th. It could not be, in fact, I hired a geology professor from ASU to triangulate the videos from March 13th. And when he went to the, he had just been to uh, the guy with the boomerang who took his video, and this is significant also information, the, the boomerang videos were taken after 10 o'clock. My video and the arrowhead video was taken before 10 o'clock. And as soon as he learned that, he said, I can't triangulate these things. Not only are they different, they look different, and mine looks like the ends of a giant V or triangle, but they were different times. He said it cannot be triangulated, whereas now in 98, we had four videos that could be triangulated. So I had been told to get in touch with Dr. Bruce McAbee, Navy optical physicist, and I thought, now is the perfect time. And I got in touch with him, and I said, uh, you know, I asked him if he would please take a look at it, and he was kind enough to do so. And as an afterthought, I put the first and the last picture from 95, which I have posted on the Phoenix Lights Network uh, photo page, and I asked him, can you please tell me what those lights are? Well, he gets in touch with me a couple weeks later, and he said, you know, you told me that the close sighting in 95 was only a couple minutes. I said, right. He said, are you sure? I said, that's what I remember. He said, ask your husband. Now, interestingly, 
my husband, now for me it was like awe and wonder and excitement and just blew me away. For my husband, he wouldn't talk about it. Now, he was inside, I was outside. I don't know if something happened, but nonetheless, he just didn't want to talk about it, so we didn't. And I told him that. He said, you've got to corroborate. And I sat him down. I said, we don't have to talk about the sighting, but tell me how long you think it was. And he said, I don't know, two, three, four minutes tops. And I go back to Dr. Maccabee and tell him this. He said, that's impossible. I said, what do you mean? And anybody that's on that page, if you want to look at those pictures, the first picture, he says, first of all, and he was the one that discovered this, the same exact phenomena that I would capture the 35-millimeter series two months before the mass sighting, as well as the video during the mass sighting, is in the same location there as well in the background, which I didn't even uh-huh. notice disappeared. In the first picture, there's four, and in the last picture, there's two, okay, in the same spot. But you also see that the orbs moved, but he, what he thought was most significant was the skyline. He said, look at the skyline. Now, I would have never noticed this in a zillion years. He said, in the first picture, there's many more lights on, groups of lights on, in the first picture that are off in the last picture. And he says, that doesn't happen in a couple of minutes. He says, I want you to do an experiment. He says, go out to the balcony and try to stand at the same place you stood in 95. Now, mind you, this is three years later. Yeah. And take a picture of the skyline one night every hour, the next night every half hour, and I actually did it another night every 15 minutes, to find out when these groups of lights go out. Now, I usually take a bath uh, for home between uh, 7 and 8 in the evening. So let's be conservative and say the starting point is 8 o'clock. Well, through his meticulous, meticulous analysis and the the whole report it's like a 21 page report is on uh the phoenix ice network website he discovered that there were many groups of lights that were on in the first picture and off in the last picture and the first groups of lights start going out at nine o'clock the last picture is indicative of 10 30 11 o'clock now when he told me this it was like okay (laughs) he says could i present this case at the upcoming 1999 MUFON International Symposium in Washington, D.C. I said, absolutely. I said, Dr. McAbee, this is your baby. I mean, I would have never noticed this data. And, you know, go for it, but keep my name out of it. Please keep me anonymous. And I have to thank every person out there. There was only a handful of people that that knew that I had these pictures and that I wanted to say anonymous. And they they really kept my name out of it for seven years. And I I treasure that friendship and, and, and their kindness. But at any rate, he didn't say who it was, but he presented the case in 1999 as the first authenticated, and as far as we know, the only, photographic evidence of missing time. Now, the reason I'm sharing it now, again, I can't, still can't get my head around because what I shared with you and your audience is exactly what I remember, okay? Mm-hmm. But if this data can open the door a little bit and not only show that linear time is primitive, our concept of time, past, present, and future, is not what time really is. Hopefully it will help in that behalf. And now we know with with um, quantum physics and quantum mechanics now coming up with string theory and bubble theory that there could be 10 or 11 different dimensions out there. Along, right. there, 
if there are other times and spaces along with ours, then why is it such a leap to think that there might be other sentient intelligences in those other times and spaces that we get glimpses of if we're open to them or invited? So that's why I am now sharing that data. And, you know, like I said, it is what it is. People can decide for themselves, but now it's it's out there, and, and uh, you know, I hope people take a look at it because we know. I mean, look, the Hubble and the Kepler telescopes have now told us, which we didn't know a couple of decades ago, that there are trillions of other galaxies out there, okay? And all these galaxies have their own stars with their own planets, and we know that the building blocks of life are out there. We know that amino acids and nitrogen and hydrogen and oxygen are out there, and life is very viable from the the hot springs of Yellowstone to the frozen Arctic lakes. And a couple of years ago, I did a, a Fox report with uh, Megan Kelly, actually, and astronaut Tom Jones, because NASA was going to make an announcement the next day uh, of alien life here. And I figured, you know what, knowing what they're probably going to release. It's probably about a microbe. <laughs> I, said, yeah. I said that. I mean, it, it, uh, because it's true. I mean, there, we know now that there is, uh, you know, when stars explode, there is stardust. We're made of stardust. And uh, these these ingredients for life are out there and traveling on asteroids and uh, and so forth and, and, uh, and meteors and, and coming to Earth. And so there could be, you know, according to um, astrophysicists, very famous astrophysicists, uh, Paul Davies over at uh, Arizona at uh, Arizona State University, um, who is a big proponent of life being traveling here from Mars, actually, um, that there could be other family trees all around us that we're not even aware of. So anyway, that's why at this point it's really important to get this information out there, and hopefully people will look into it. And, and also now I'm working on a curriculum for kids. Uh, now that the book and the documentary have gotten lives of their own, um, I, I am concentrating with some amazing, amazing people, a Disney illustrator, uh, Mark is fabulous, and, and uh, Kate, teacher, and, um, and, and Ray is, is helping us with, uh, with uh, some of the games that we're trying to get together for kids uh, called Out of the Box, The Adventures of Sue. F-O, Field Observer, and Hugh, H-U-G-H, Hugh, F-O. And it is going to be so amazing, Barbara. I mean, just so excited about that because it's really groundbreaking. As I mentioned, there is nothing in our classrooms, and, and I really have been working with the schools. Uh, we have pilot programs. We're trying it out with the kids, and they're, they're giving feedback, wonderful feedback, uh, to really get a comprehensive curriculum out there on this topic, on the paranormal topic, as well as UFOs, uh, so that, you know, kids can learn. They want this knowledge. They thirst for it. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I think one of the things that is happening in the schools today is that the kids aren't being taught how to think, and they aren't being taught how to open their creativity and their imaginations to the, to the spirit stuff that's inside of them. So if you can give them some tools to reach for those aspects within them, um, it, it opens up their, their lives to a greater potential than, than kids have today, that's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's 
that's that's the bottom line here. I mean, you know, not only do kids thirst for this knowledge, but like you said, uh, I mean, you hit on so many great points, Barbara, because uh, part of it is critical thinking. Um, you know, what if we're not alone in the universe? How would that change our world? What would we tell them about us? What if we can't survive here anymore? What would we do? And we have some amazing activities that, that really gets into the heart of all this, as well as crop circles. I mean, there's so many incredible things out there that we can teach them, and also both sides. I mean, it is critical thinking. They have to be able to decipher, um, you know, in their their own being, uh, you know, what is realistic and, and what is a hoax and, and so forth. And that's what we're going to be uh, doing with, uh, with this comprehensive curriculum. So, um, you know, stay tuned for that. We're very excited about that, and hopefully that will be done in the next year before the 20th anniversary, um, which is fast approaching. So, uh, again, yeah. if anybody's in the neighborhood uh, in Arizona, it's sold out every year uh, at the uh, Scottsdale Hark and Chase Theater. We have the information up on the website, uh, Phoenix Lights Network website, and also Phoenix Lights Network um, Facebook page. And uh, the, the documentary... Um, not only is available in libraries and also on YouTube, if you don't mind looking at the advertising, um, but the uh, DVD, which uh, the best discount is at uh, Amazon.com, uh, has bonus features that are just tremendous. We've been adding bonus features every year, and there's other coincidences that happened on March 13th. If we have time to talk about them for two seconds, <laughs> which is really yeah, 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 cool that we're talking about. Sure, go for it. We have a minute, okay? Um, sure. Yeah, on March 13th. Talk about coincidences. Um, first of all, there was a satellite that uh, is supposed to detect incoming missiles that was built in Chandler, Arizona. And we were told at Village Labs that that satellite went dead on March 13th. That's number one. Wow. Number two, in August of 1990, or July, excuse me, July of 1997, there was an article in. Um, uh, Scientific America did not mention the Phoenix Lights, but an article that there were strange gamma rays in our atmosphere on March 13, 1997. Um, also, you may remember that then-President Clinton was at Greg Norman, the golfer's house in Florida, and he was actually rushed out and supposedly uh, broke his knee, fractured his knee. There are no, and I really investigated this, so, there are no photo ops, and we know Clinton, okay? There are no photo ops of his knee uh, being injured. But nonetheless, um, that's what we were told, and uh, supposedly he was taking, taken to a, an undisclosed location on March 13, 1997. And, um, you know, this is speculation, but uh, we were told this, too, that we went to DEFCON 3 on March 13, 1997. So, you know, if if that is so, um, we're talking about some major coincidences there. <laughs> yeah, well, we've agreed there is no such a thing as a coincidence. <laughs> so but. anyway, I, I do hope that people pick up the book, which is available at, at libraries. And there's just so much, as you know, Barbara, and I'll make sure you get the updated version. Um, there is so oh, much great. more to this story. I just... You know, as much as we've shared a lot of information today, there is so much more to this story, and I hope people will, will take the opportunity because there were some pretty heavy 
duty paranormal things that happened uh, the month after the mass sighting to, to me personally, um, which I do divulge, and also a message, um, a very, very profound message that um, I got during the night um, a month after the mass sighting, just hours after a couple an elderly couple out in uh, uh, Buckeye uh, shot daylight uh, footage of these lights. And um, it really set me on this journey because I wanted to find out what it meant. And it's a very, very profound uh, spiritual message. So, um, you know, as I as I tell people all the time, keep looking up. It was a double entendre. Yes. <laughs> keep looking uh, up. You know, you're you're just along for the ride, and it's so exciting. It is very exciting. I have to tell you, it's been an incredible adventure and meeting wonderful people like yourself, and I so appreciate you letting me share this information and uh, your audience as well. Thank you for listening, and, um, you know, I hope you'll uh, search a little further and look into the to the data, the book, and the documentary, and the and the, uh, uh, the website is packed with information, packed with information. Yeah. So enjoy, enjoy, and, and thank you again for letting me be a, a part of your show and for sharing the information, and we'll keep you posted with the curriculum. And, oh, fantastic. Uh, yes, and, and for all those out there that, you know, want to share, please, I, 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 that's what I'm here for. Um, you know, please don't, don't hesitate to, to contact me and, and share your, your experience, and it's going to feel good when you do, I promise you. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, thanks again, and we will get you back on again sometime next year when we get closer to the 20th, and you can catch us up on all the <clears throat> coincidences that have happened since then. Sounds great. Sounds great. You just keep looking up, okay? Thanks a lot, Lynn. Take all care right, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, you okay. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you, everybody, so much for staying just a little bit over. Um I do appreciate your hanging in there, and I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Uh, tomorrow night, 8 to 10, with uh, another global psychic and healer medium psychic, who's really super, so do catch us then. So uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening, and good night. Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Today, Bridget Griffin shared a video of her daily yoga routine, two self-help articles, and her new blog called Build Your Inner Bridge with Bridge. Girl, your sharing has turned into oversharing. No worries, Bridge. Geico has some info worth sharing with your seven blog followers, like how you could save money on your car insurance, update your policy, and report a claim just by visiting geico.com. How's that for building your inner bridge? Bridge, Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.